Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for July 11th, 2019, the You the North, We the South edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, and the Gab Fest is live in front of a patriotic and raucous crowd at the Kerner Hall at the TELUS Center for Performance and Learning in Toronto. So, Canada, in recent weeks, I know this is, this is a, I'm going to scrape a sore spot here for a minute, but you've been betrayed by an American superstar <laughs> who abandoned you for oh, Los yeah. Angeles. Oh yeah, my husband told me about this last night. He said it was yeah. the one thing about Canada I needed to know. <laughs> but now, yeah. I'm not sure I remember the name of the player. Co- Say it, say it for her. <laughs> oh yeah, well, Leonard, gonna... right. Okay. So, Thank you. But you can weep no more because we've brought two superstars from America back back to Toronto to replace Kawhi. Yes. On my immediate right. Strong in the paint. On my immediate right, hailing from the New York Times, which is like the Globe and Mail, is Emily Bazelon. And on Emily's right is a man who is really disappointed that we're here with the Rosedale elite and not among the, the yeoman farmers of Alberta. CBS's John Dickerson. So, before we get the show started, actually, I want to do a little quiz because I had a revelation today, a Canadian revelation. As I was walking around with new, a new Canadian friend, I learned that you guys have a Senate, which I did not know. And it tur- We've already failed the quiz. And it I didn't turns know out, but it turns out that none of you know anything about your Senate. So we're going to do a little quiz. And I want everyone, so the question, and I want you to be honest, the question on the table is how many senators do you have? And don't shush, 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 shush. You're being very bossy and American. Uh, so I want you to think, and I'm, now I'm going to do a little audience survey. How many of you think you have between zero and 50 senators. <laughs> I know that's not true because there, you have to make noise. You can't raise your hand. <laughs> Wait, what is the noise you make in ignorance? <laughs> Wait, somebody's right, saying, well, you do it on the chair. show every week, John. Yeah. Okay. All right. How many of you think you have between 50 and 100 senators? You have to clap. How many of you think you have between 100 and 150 senators? I'm afraid you're not going to know the answer. I guess how, someone in the how room. Many of you, how many of you think you have more than 150 senators? Yeah. And is anyone out here willing to hazard a guess at the exact right number? been the right it's answer a, at some point. It's a, yeah, I think it maybe it is. It's 105, but no, I like did a survey at the bar before. Nobody knew it. It's embarrassing. Come so on. So does it do anything, the Senate? I don't know. I didn't learn that part. <laughs> huh. Um, they well, have room for other things in their brains. It's like a good thing. They're not bothering to pay attention to this if it doesn't do anything. Do we, are there any senators here? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, is there a senator here? Um, all right. After 13 long years, the GabFest has finally made a trip abroad. We are, we're excited to be in this culturally impoverished backwater city. 
and meet its population of, of benighted non-Americans, and to have a chance to teach you all about the United States. <laughs> so we're here to tell you about how you can have a healthcare system that covers fully 77% of the population, about an American culture that's changed the world of music. You, after a century of listening to French-Canadian fiddle music on your one government-subsidized radio station, may be glad to know that you, you will have the chance to listen to people like Neil Young and Justin Bieber and Drake, and know what, what, what American pop music sounds like. And we're going to spend some time tonight introducing you to the magnificent institutions of American government. You all accustomed to living under absolute monarchy, the despotic rule of Queen Elizabeth. You're going to be surprised to learn about our nonpartisan Supreme Court, about the dignity and incorruptibility of the American president, and even our electoral college. We are so together, we've got a college that elects a president. And as far as I can tell, you guys don't even have a high school, so. You're gonna have, a, it's gonna be a night of learning. So on today's GabFest, we're gonna talk about the state of the Democratic presidential race and the Republican presidential race, sure, why not? And whether the recent assault on healthcare by the president and his team is gonna hurt his reelection chances. Then a real live Canadian, Jesse Brown of the podcast Canada Land is going to join us to explain why the American alt-right and intellectual dark web is so dominated by Canadians. And then we're going to talk about the Jeffrey Epstein case, the shocking story of the billionaire child molester and all the important people who protected him. So I'm not going to lie here. We're still a long way out from the presidential election. You guys here in Canada are going to have a presidential, or it's not a presidential, you're going to have a, whatever it is, whatever you Prime call Minister it. Prime Minister and Parliament. Parliamentary election, a full year before we're going to have ours. But yet, the nature of the race and the stakes are starting to be defined in, in the Democratic primary in particular. We had our first culling in the Democratic field this week. We lost one of the candidates. Some, some guy dropped out. I can't, who was it, John? Swalwell. 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 No one has heard of him before. They will not hear of him since. There are worries among Democrats that, that President Trump is going to be able to run successfully on a record of economic prosperity. As John's going to tell us in a minute, he has his highest poll numbers, I think, of his presidency right now. And meanwhile, there, is also there are Democratic hopes that this legal attack on Obamacare that has been recently been leveled by the administration might be manna from heaven for the party in 2020. So, Emily, let's start with this new attack on Obamacare. There was a, a new case where... The conservatives are trying to take down Obamacare the one more time, yes. and it seems like political suicide. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So this is a case that brings a challenge to Obamacare based on the recent decision that Congress made to zero out the penalty for not for the penalty for the individual mandate, right? So in our super complicated system, we had this idea you were going to pay a fee, which the Supreme Court called a tax, if you didn't buy healthcare in the exchanges. The latest Congress eliminated that penalty. And so the sort of tortured theory of the lawsuit is that makes the law unconstitutional because since Roberts called the, the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, called it a tax. If it's a tax of zero, it can't be a tax. And so then that um, 
means that it's not constitutional. So that in itself seems sort of nonsensical a little bit, like the zeroness of it. This sort of, it's almost like an epistemological question about the nature of a tax and the nature of the number of zero, the concept zero. But the crazy part of this lawsuit was that the, pla- the state of Texas argued that this meant the entire huge thousands of pages Affordable Care Act should fall, even though we have this very well-entrenched theory and America- doctrine in American law, conservatives and liberals subscribe to it on the courts, that you, the courts, if they see a deficiency in a piece of legislation, they should be as careful as possible in just slicing away the part that's messed up and leaving the rest of it there. The idea is that the legislature intended the law to stand, and so you try to mess with it as little as possible. However, the Republican appointee federal district court judge in Texas agreed with this um, notion, ordered the law to be struck down in its entirety. That order was stayed while the appeal was brought. And then this week we had arguments in the Fifth Circuit, which is the Court of Appeals that includes Texas, in which two of three judges, the two Republicans appointees versus the Democrats, seemed kind of interested in buying into this idea. We're really flirting with it, talking about the scope of their order to strike down the Affordable Care Act as if like the initial question of whether to strike it down at all was not even super at issue. The political suicide part of this story is that the Trump administration is not defending the um, Affordable Care Act in court, which is unusual, not unprecedented. Once in a while, the Justice Department will decide for some deeply held reason, political or moral or philosophical, that they don't want to defend a law. But it's not the norm. And some career lawyers in the Justice Department, one of them resigned. Everyone refused to sign the brief that they filed, which is like a lawyerly sign of um, something not normal is happening. And so... What is at risk here is the Trump administration looking as if it has no plan to protect people, especially people with pre-existing conditions, if this lawsuit succeeds. And given that there's no, you know, uh, a law, no living happening Republican plan to repeal Obamacare, if you just take out this law in the courts, then what? Is that really a stance that, you know, could threaten the Republicans coming up in the election? What do you think about that, John? Well, before we get to that part, um, when the administration decides not to support the Affordable Care Act, um, is that the same as what Obama did with discretion on immigration? Is that essentially equivalent? or No, because that was an executive order, right? It's more like Obama deciding not to defend the Defense of Defense Marriage, Marriage Act. Act. Right? Okay. So it's like we have this law on the books, but we, the, the presidential administration doesn't support it. So what's striking about the... Um, on the healthcare front is we're basically about to be in the t- in 2021, either you're going to have a re-election or a new president, maybe starting the, the conversation about healthcare in earnest again. That'll be 10 years after the Affordable Care Act. So yeah, basically we will have spent 10 years. You, which you know, in itself was 20 years after Clinton, the Clinton. Right. Start talking so about a this. scaffolding was built and a bunch of people were br- covered in. and put on top of the scaffolding. And now for 10 years, there's been this battle to like, knock out a two by four here and like unscrew a screw there, but never fully dismantling the scaffolding and definitely not making the scaffolding better and inviting more people up to it, which gives you a sign of how diminished things have gotten, that we are in this pitched battle in these, going into these crazy corners to like knock out a lug nut when 
the purpose of public policy and collective action is to solve a big problem, which is a bunch of uninsured people or the high cost of care or the inefficiencies in the system. None of that has been happening but in any way. Why do you think, John, the Republicans are so eager just to take down this law, even though it well, introduces instability? People don't want it taken down. They like having health care in general. They like having health insurance. Well, because I think they don't. If we if we think that this next presidential election is going to be essentially a totally base only election, then they are based on and the donor class really wants this law and it's a promise that they made so they're fulfilling they're fulfilling their promise which is to dismantle this this obamacare by all means necessary and so they'll call it a win and the it seems to me if you were being purely machiavellian you would want to be able to say you were finally dismantling the scaffolding without it falling on those with pre-existing conditions until the election happens. Right, the Right, because you can roll. say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna protect pre-existing conditions even though you have no policy to actually legitimately do it's that. Just, it's such a crime to introduce instability and uncertainty and doubt into people's healthcare decisions. It's such wickedness. Right, I mean, and there are these statistics about how many more people will literally die without health insurance if the law is Not pulled back. Not Republican voters. Right, but we haven't settled in the United States, though you have settled this year, I believe, the sort of fundamental question about who should control this market and whether we want it to be a, mar- a private market or a public market. And in fact, the divide, if anything, is deepened. Here's what seems weird, though, about it is if you buy that there's a portion of the electorate that's on the Republican side that is unhappy with Donald Trump, um, sometimes people talk about them in terms of being suburban women voters. It's this, you know, these blunt ways in which we lump people together and say they're all the same and they're not. But for the purposes of not being here until breakfast, um, you have to kind of lump people together. When you're fighting on health care, yes, the base wants to get, the Republican base wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act and, and Obamacare. But there is... If, you, if it becomes a debate about values and a debate about protecting people, um, that does seem to me to be one in which Democrats have some facility in the conversation and that they, where they might have some inroads with that group of Republican voters who are not fans of Donald Trump's but basically will vote for him if they get scared away from the Democratic Party, which is why there's a lot of efforts to make them scared about the Democratic Party. And if you had a debate about covering people um, where it was a kind of values-based um, taking care of people who are uh, one paycheck away or one illness away from bankruptcy, you could imagine a conversation in that context in which it wouldn't just be good for the Republican base, but in which Democrats could put their best foot forward on this issue. So, John, to change the subject, so Trump had his highest approval numbers, maybe of his presidency, this week. What the hell is going on? What, how is that? Why? Why now? And is this something that? Democrats should be worried about. Is this a, is this a fact? Is this a, is this a product of voters starting to look at the Democratic field and being like, well, maybe there's nobody here who, who's better than what we got? Sure. So I think you've got it. One, it's one poll. It's a, a very good ABC Washington Post poll. It's a very good poll. But um, so it's just one, though, right? So next week it could show that, you know, some wildly other thing. So we all want to be super, super careful about anything. But it was notable that... Um, that it was going in what's a good direction for you if you're the presidency. And so there are a couple of things that might be the case. One, um, the economy still continues to be strong. That The two most important things in a normal American life for a reelected president are incumbency and the economy. What's the big problem for Donald Trump is that his numbers aren't better. They should be fantastic given where the economy is and the people sense that the economy is better. 
The other thing is the Kim Jong-un meeting, you know, would have been seen by some people as a as a positive. Here he's doing something that, that looks like it might be making progress on No, that's bullshit. That's ridiculous. There's not, not there's nobody there's not one actual sentient voter who we like looked at that meeting and was like, oh, well, that's a real significant public policy totally, accomplishment. I'm going to be pulled. I really am going to support the president. I think you're totally wrong. I think people saw there were there were sentient voters who saw no. that as optimistic. People want to no. look on the bright no. side. Right. I yes. agree. Also, also part of what happens when you're at 40, but his numbers at 47, which is still not good. In, but but we were in this new place in American politics where um, this here's a question. Um, Will we ever have a president who has 70% approval rating ever again? Because we're so polarized that 47... Um, if we go to war, we will. Yeah. Um, the, it's kind um, of weird that Trump hasn't realized that, because that that's a... It's you can, the one card he hasn't he, played. He would definitely play that card if he thought it well, would there's win him the election. I'm not I, sure. not, I, that, I don't know that that's right. Oh, he's really... I, I don't know that that's right. He has... His instincts on war and where the American public uh, are is right now, I think are actually really solid and I don't think he thinks that the American public would be all for a war. If America was attacked or something, I was struck that Pew You'd have had to a, agree. there's yeah, there isn't enough of a pretext for it. Um, Pew had numbers that just came out about the Af- war in Afghanistan and Iraq. 58, 59% of veterans say the Afghanistan the war in Afghanistan was a mistake and the numbers for Iraq are in the high 60s. So, I'm not sure that And that also the sense that people were play, that the American public was played runs yeah. pretty deep. I right. mean, I feel like we we heard and saw a lot of that in the recent uh, allegations of attacks by Iran but, in right. the Gulf, right? That people were like, "Wait a second, in a way that they seemed quite slow to jump on the war bandwagon. Just quickly on the point about North Korea. So you've got some portion of the voters who drift away from Trump, who are who are Republicans or who are Republican-leaning independents, and they see him on the world stage doing presidential things, and they and they come back into the fold. That's where some of this sloshing around I happens. I don't... He, he These are people who pro- already voted for him. And I know, but John, for, it's like the Republicans, you know, three years ago, the idea that the president would, would, would sort of, like, tiptoe into North Korea to cozy up to a dictator who's literally done nothing to restrain his nuclear program like is was would be anathema to them but i know it's, but you were and so and so they may be pleased by it but they're pleased because they've they've fallen victim to some sort of partisan delusion not well, because they actually believe that this is helpful or they but, even believe in the public policy that's being pursued but your poll numbers can go up on the basis of partisan delusion just as well as pure reason in fact <laughs> In fact, right, they often do go up for the for, for partisan delusion. That's the glory of American yeah. politics. Um, so, um, because, I mean, think about it. If, if Think about all the other things in which uh, the supporters of the president have kind of reversed themselves on things from free trade to the ethical and, and moral behavior of the person in the Oval Office and so forth. So it's not that inconsistent that they would think that it looks good that he's talking to Kim Jong-un when previously they would have seen that as capitulation. The... Um, uh, and the only other thing I would say is that they, and I think the Democratic debates probably did spook some of those people I was talking about earlier who have voted for Trump before and who didn't see anything necessarily on the Democratic stage that they thought, ah, that's the, the replacement. Actually, so let's turn to that, Emily. Can we turn to that? So, so we had the Democratic, the first Democratic de- debates a couple of weeks ago. There will now be 114 more of them coming soon. There's another one at the end of July. Is mm-hmm. that right? I thought it wasn't until September, but that's wrong. Yeah. Um, so what's your sense about whether... Have we moved into a into a race where it really has has even though we st- there are still twenty three candidates in the field, and I think Tom Steyer, this uh, 
billionaire. I've heard of him. Tom Steyer has decided to run for president. I can't even talk about how idiotic I think that is. But do you well, think wait, we've moved... Wait, talk about why you think that's idiotic. I don't... I mean, it's just like the, this idea, I'm a big pile of money, I get to run for president. I mean, at least Howard Schultz <laughs> is doing... Howard Schultz, the president of Starbucks, or what CEO of Starbucks, has, has this plan to do it. And he's... Howard Schultz is doing it particularly... Uh, maleficent way, which is that he's doing it by running as an independent, which will simply make it more likely that President Trump is elected, uh, which he doesn't want. I mean, Steyer is at least planning to run as a Democrat, which is the decent thing. But it, 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 there's this way in which these rich people, first of all, there's this parasitical class of political consultants who go up to them and say, yeah, you can be president. You really can be president. I Why don't you give you. me a million dollar a month you know, retainer and we're going to make sure you're president. And it's, so there's this kind of Remora-like uh, class of, of political consultants who, who are telling these people nonsense. We all know Tom Steyer is not going to be president. That's number one. And number two, it's just the, the, the kind of pure egomania of someone who, who has done, you know, he's been a very successful investor. And he's done other good progressive things sure, with his money. Yeah. But the, the idea is like, oh, that entitles me to run for president is so narcissistic and and out of touch and I it just it's infuriating and there are a lot like, of better you, things to do with he was doing better things with his money he yeah. was using his money for good I don't understand why the 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 right answer is like oh let me let me valorize myself and create posters of myself it might not be completely out of his thinking that that it worked with the guy who's in office now <laughs> right it's been Although it's I don't, so good for the country to have I, a, a, a narcissistic rich guy as but president. If you're Tom I don't think Steyer, you'd, I don't think you'd. I don't think the Democratic Party would. I mean, that was a bit. That was pat, but it, it seemed to be. It had to be said. But what I just can't quite imagine is if you're Tom Steyer, what are you not hearing or seeing yeah. that you think you are going to say and do yeah. that's going to get lots of people behind you? Right. Right. Like, what, like I don't. Right. I, what is the field missing? Right. We're missing a Canadian. Another apparently. white man. It just seems very strange. Right. I mean, it's not. Yeah. And and yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it's a strong field, but I don't quite see how Tom Steyer is the antidote. Why do you think it's a strong field? I don't I'm just not. I, I think I always feel like this during the primaries that until it's clear at least who the top two or three people are or who there's a candidate, they all seem small. They, they all, I don't know, they also just still feel untested to me, too. Right. And, you know, going back to our conversation about healthcare, I'm not sure that the moving to the left on healthcare is a smart political move for the general election. And I think we're starting to see that, you know, there are certainly candidates who are holding off and not going all the way toward Medicare for all. But the notion that Republican, the kinds of Republican voters you were talking about would be spooked, I see why. Well, you... you I mean, one of the things that's so fascinating about this race right now is you have people, you have different bets being made about what the shape of the electorate looks like and what the strategy is to get elected. And so Joe Biden is up by 10 points in that same ABC Washington Post poll over Trump. Trump. And everybody else is basically flat with him. And and then the Post and ABC did something else that I don't, that surprises me, is they asked this question or they had this finding. When voters have to choose between President Trump and a candidate they believe is a socialist, Trump led 49% to 43%. There are no socialists running. So when you ask that question and you're using the word that, you know, has been used... The scare tactic fearmonger word. Since Truman, that Republicans have used to scare people away from Democrats, that strikes me that you... that's 
I'm well, not sure why they're doing it. Well, it injecting the Democrats' biggest problem into the into more the neutral. Into the poll number. Right. Yes, and then once exactly. you announce that, it's become, you and could argue, it becomes self right. You can imagine we'll be asking that question for months in this way that will then imprint it in people's minds. Right. So I'm surprised that they, that they did that. But anyway, going back to this question of Biden being up by 10, everybody else being even, some people look at that and say, well, see, that's what the electorate's going to look like. And so Biden, who's trying at least temperamentally, if not policy-wise, to participate in kind of more moderate version of the Democratic Party is smart because of the general election. This is this great unresolved question, which which determines how you run your how you run the race. And it's based essentially on a bunch of Democrats sitting around guessing about what the election and the electorate's going to look like. And even the people who do that professionally don't know. Heart, right? Because they're working for different candidates. Well, they right. want to imagine a world in which someone no, but, else would win. I mean, there is this moment. Either we're in this moment where Biden is the clear front runner and the party should be uniting behind him because from the party's point of view, Trump is the real threat. Or we're seeing the necessary testing of someone who is ahead for shaky reasons. Name recognition, familiarity, Obama credibility, but actually is just not a good enough candidate to really carry it. I have no idea. Right. It's very confounding. How, how soon do you guys think will we know whether Biden is a paper tiger or whether, whether rec really he's the, the one who's going to carry the party's banner? Do you well, think it's not going to be t- till there are real votes? I, well, and this is, again, this is another fascinating question, which is, let's say you're Kamala Harris or you're Bernie Sanders. You could say, basically, I'm staying in this till the very end because who knows? And, and then you end up having this long, drawn-out battle um, so we may not know, you know, you may not know right up until uh, until the convention, because there are a lot of people who believe, particularly with Bernie Sanders, as it was interesting last time around, it'll be interesting again here. These are people who are really in his camp and are unlikely to move away unless something crazy happens. Um, and I'm also fascinated to see the next debate that's in Detroit. What is the what is what do, what do the other candidates learn? You mentioned Eric Swalwell, who jumped who dropped out. You you may remember in the debate he really tried to go after Pete Buttigieg to try and like make a name for himself by attacking him. It didn't work, but it it worked for Castro and Harris to be aggressive More and confrontational. Aggressive, right. So will all the other candidates take that learning? Are there going to be all twenty X of them did again? Did you say take that learning? Can you not I was ever hoping, say that word again? I know. I was hoping. I was. You're 100% right. I was Take the lesson. No, I know. It's just the same word. I know. I misspoke. I misspoke. Same number of syllables. I I know. Are they all going to be there again in their Marianne Williamson glory? I'm so mad that I know her name. That just seems like a waste of. There's going to be a drawing which they're doing live, which I think we. Which is a. uh, Live in front of all of them? No, it's going to be like televised live, the drawing, like, like, of, like of, the lottery when the pinballs come down the, the chute. Um, oh, my God. Uh, um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, it'll just be interesting to see how they, how they choose to uh, behave. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Today's Slate Plus segment is a Q&A with our Toronto audience. You should go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. 
And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Americans have always been pretty good at manufacturing our own homegrown racists and loathsome nativists, but we have started outsourcing these traditional American jobs to Canadians. And we are joined now by Jesse Brown, publisher of the Canada Land Podcast Network and host of Canada Land, a great podcast about Canadian media and politics. He's here to explain why the great white North has become a beacon of white nationalism for Americans. Welcome, Jesse. Hello. Hello. So, Jesse, briefly um, tell us about some of the Canadian influences on the American alt-right on white nationalists, incels, international dark web, excuse me, intellectual dark web. Well, it's international now, too. Why not? <laughs> the intellectual dark web. How, where, who are the Canadians? What are they doing? Where do they come from? Uh, there's a whole rogues gallery. I mean, we have uh, Faith Goldie, who is a uh, white supremacist who has, I think, born and raised here in Toronto. Uh, she was uh, employed by Ezra Levant, who's Rebel News. It's, it's rebranded as Rebel News from Rebel Media. That is... I think it was cast somewhere in the in the image of Breitbart or Glenn Beck's The Blaze, but it took on an international fame and has produced a, a bunch of alt-right, extreme-right superstars. Uh, there's uh, Stéphane Molyneux. Uh, then if you, it's a different category, but in the intellectual dark web, of course, Jordan Peterson is from here in Toronto. You know that scene in Mary Poppins where they're like all up on the ceiling, all festive, and then they start to come down as they deflate? I feel like that's happening to the room right now. <laughs> we punch above our weight in producing these, these characters. What about, um, what's his name from Vice, too? Oh, of course, Gavin McInnes, who is the founder of the Proud Boys, which is sort of like, I don't know, a Republican street gang. Um, you mentioned uh, the incel thing. That has Canadian roots. The whole manosphere has all sorts of Canadian uh, beginnings. So we're, we're kind of in all of these different categories. There's heavy Canadian influence and, and big Canadian players. So we as outsiders often look on Canada with great admiration. It seems more stable, more sane, less politicized. And yet it's this breeding ground for this particular form of extremism. So why is that happening? The straightforward answer, and not necessarily the, the, the right answer, but the, the most obvious answer is that it's your fault. <laughs> that famous, much, that's that's famous Canadian hospitality. Listen, I know that it's a very... It sounds true, perhaps. It, <laughs> it's a comforting idea that, you know, meanwhile in Canada, you know, you guys are putting children in cages, and look, here's a moose in a cage. <laughs> And he's not there because anyone put him there violently. They he just, walked in. They, yeah, no, we smoked too much legal marijuana and 
It was cold out and everyone was polite. It's a very comforting meme that everything here is just a nicer, gentler, kinder version. But listen, look at this room right now. We, we, we consume, we live, we're more Americans than we are Canadians. I mean, the, the, we publish at my podcast network the most popular Canadian political podcast. We can't fill this room. <laughs> you guys can fill this room. And, and more Canadians can tell you what Trump's polling numbers are at than, you know, how many Canadian senators there are. It must be so irritating to have to pay attention to us, like, to have no, right? Like, we should be, should be able to ignore us safely and happily. <laughs> oh, they applaud for that, but we're fascinated. We can't look but, away. Well, that's well, but why, another but, problem. But why, we all have that problem. But, okay, but why this, I mean, <laughs> th- th- that, that explanation could mean that you spawn lots of great country music singers, or... We do. You, uh, <laughs> No, but also, but this why, is why the why the alt right? Why the intellectual why the dark right? web? So, so, why I those mean, particular so the first is that phenomena? You sneeze, we catch a cold, and you caught a big case of bigotry, and now we are producing a lot of bigots. I, I'm not satisfied with that. But answer. it's happening in Europe too, so that's not because of the states. Yes, and there are things that are happening here that are not happening elsewhere. A a, a bill was just passed in Quebec that makes it they illegal for a Orthodox Jew wearing a kippah or a, a Muslim wearing a, a headscarf to teach, to, to drive a bus. It is illegal for them to do that. That's that, your French roots. I feel that we have to blame France for that, not the United States. <laughs> there is a unique and specific history in Quebec about the way the Catholic Church, uh, the role that it played and, and the, you know, kind of fascistic secularism that is broken out there that 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 if you're ca- what if you're a catholic priest can you wear a priest collar and be a drive a bus well so this was the question so if you have a crucifix around your neck they say okay fine that person can't either uh so it's not a religious it's not discriminatory it's anybody it disproportionately affects uh people who are racialized but you know this is for everybody it is in canada and not in the united states where a alt-right uh ben shapiro listening angry young man walked into a mosque and opened fire on people at prayer. That happened here, not there. And, and it's here where the yellow vest movement, and, and, and not Quebec, but Alberta and elsewhere, has been embraced and, and has mutated into a movement that is, yes, about uh, class and working people's jobs, but also let's throw in that we should hang our prime minister for letting in too many migrants and refugees. So there are some uniquely Canadian aspects to this that sadly I can't blame you for. Do you think, I mean, do you guys think, this is more a question for us, that as Americans, so, so that why would Americans be susceptible to Canadians talking about this, or to the, like the Quillette, um, the, editor, the founding editor of Quillette was Australian, I think, um, although there's now a Canadian editor of Quillette, right? Or one there's, of the, yeah, there's yeah. an unpleasant yeah. Canadian now editing it. So, but that why are we susceptible to these outsiders coming in and, and sort of accelerating our own racism and... Can't oh, they, because I, it's validating and adds respectability. But isn't the of, but isn't this happening in parallel all across the globe right now? So it doesn't necessarily need to be. I mean, we happen to be neighbors, but um, but the the movement towards nationalism and the and the nationalist reaction to inequality and globalism and refugees is happening everywhere. Right, but if you're in Hungary, I think the people who are leading the kind of fascist right in Hungary are basically Hungarian. They're not. They're not Bulgarians who've come over from Hungary to be like, you guys should be more fascistic. Why is it that, w- that in America we're welcoming these fellow travelers who, who are coming from outside and they are, and they are given credibility be- 
for some reason? What is that reason? Why do we accept that? I go well, back to my explanation that it's validating, that if it has this broader appeal, if the place that we imagine, perhaps falsely, to be saner and um, better and sunnier and friendlier is also breeding this kind of thinking, then the, you know, bring it on. Like, then that shows that it has deep roots, that it's real. I think we're just really good at it. Uh, uh, for the same reason that Canadians are good at comedy. We, we spend yep. our lives consuming your stuff. We make a study of, of America and Americanisms and American culture, and we absorb them, and sometimes we mimic them, and we can be really good at them. So I don't think that Americans are saying, oh, do we accept this Faith Goldie racist? Is she as good as our racists, uh, even though she's a Canadian? The Canadian is a sort of a secondary thing. She's just really good at it. And, right. and we, can, we can kind of get in there and speak your language uh, and excel at it, unfortunately. I, I, I think actually there's this way in which if you're an outsider who comes in, if you're Gavin McInnes who comes into the U.S. and starts to, to preach hate, um, if you're an American who does that, there are a lot of... Um, your family is likely to not be happy with you. You're going to have come from a network of friends who are going to be like, what an asshole this guy has become. It may feel to you like, oh, yeah, I can say whatever I want here. You're not going to get those social signals and that, that disapproval that causes most people to to behave politely and normally and not be terrible. John, you look so skeptical of what I'm, I'm saying. You haven't gone that far. It's, like, it's not as if your family doesn't know what's happening. <laughs> There's another thing that I think comes up a lot. It comes up with Jordan Peterson and... It's, that it's the flip side of the meanwhile in Canada things are great. It's the American conservative look at Canada where they say, oh, you think that that's some sort of utopia, their healthcare system's so great. Well, they have death panels and it's failing miserably. And you think Canada is this progressive wonderland. Well, look at this professor in Toronto. They're forcing him to use these pronouns. This is what would happen if we let our freedom of speech get away from us. We would be like these Canadians. Uh, so I think that's a very attractive message to people who, who want to look at Canada in a very different way. That's a really good point, especially given the kind of obsessive covering of universities right now. Someone who seems to have a legitimate complaint. I mean, I understand in the end your human rights law was not, in fact, forcing the kind of No, he was of completely language, misinterpreting right? and misunderstanding. Exactly. But I think that idea, that myth, is there is a way in which I think people are looking for um, facts like that to be true about universities to kind of confirm there were suspicions and that universities are getting outsized attention right now is these uh, cultural hotspots, these places that conservatives are alienated from, sometimes for good reason, but the exaggerated interest and kind of amping up of the facts, that was like a perfect story to mainline right into that set of anxiety. Absolutely. And it, it's, it's the use of Canada as a rhetorical tool to, to prove something, a point on the right. And uh, just as Canada is used as a rhetorical tool by Americans to, to prove something uh, for progressives, look at how things could be if we would just be more like Canadians. Canadians like these rhetorical tools. We like to be used, depending on where you fall. Uh, we love it when Americans say, oh, look at Canada, so, this is what we could be. But we need to be a real country and not a rhetorical do, tool. We have problems here. Do you think that Canada is susceptible to the same nativist, racist, uh, white nationalist uh, movement that America is increasingly susceptible? Do you think it can, do you think it can infect your politics in quite the same way that it clearly has infected our politics. Where it has. It? Yeah, it has. And I don't know, in, in some ways more so. Uh, you're, you're in Ontario right now. Our premier is, is Doug Ford, the brother of the late... <laughs> 
He got a lot of votes in this room. He did the, really well. You can tell. The only, the only Canadian mayor that probably a lot of your listeners can remember is Rob Ford, the, the uh, deceased uh, crack-smoking uh, mayor of Toronto. Uh, his brother is now the, a very Trump-like figure here. Uh, there's a conservative premier in Alberta, also in Quebec. The anti-immigrant sentiment is absolutely, you know, it, it's frothing here in Canada. And I think that the notion of Canada as a multicultural society is a new notion. Uh, the history of Canada is, is longer than that, and it is what it is. This is, this is a colony. This is a country that uh, did not go and violently assert its independence. We, we asked for it. Uh, Politely. You, know, <laughs> you have, uh, you know, what is it, uh, liberty and uh, the pursuit of happiness? What was the first one? Life? Life. Life, liberty, yeah. All right. the pursuit of happiness. Life, okay. uh, peace, order, and good government is the closest Canadian corollary. So keeping things on the level, status quo, there are people who are very threatened, very threatened uh, by this idea of Canada as a multi... I mean, I, I say this, I also believe in that vision of Canada, and I think that we are a multicultural success story. It's, it's true, but it, this is... Thank you. But I think that those of us who feel that way can't just rest on the global conception. We have to, we have to fight for that now. So, it's just a last question to you, Jesse. So, you've sent us all these um, repellent figures. How do we send them back? <laughs> I wish I could help you there. <laughs> it was really easy to get to into the country us. today. I mean, it's it was like, <laughs> it didn't seem like there was no wall or anything. It, just like, it was like five minutes. I feel like, can't they just, can't we just nudge them? I mean, the, the problem is that these forces that create these conditions are basically much bigger than any one person. So, or, and when, or country. And, or country. And they're going to be there until, you know, either whether it's refugees or the inequalities in the economic system that gets people um, to feel like there are these inequities that need to be resisted with uh, behavior outside the norms. Those that all that is that to me seems like the cauldron that's bubbling all across the globe. And you know, there may be a period where you have some notable names who may come from one country or the other, but. The stuff that's, it feels like 90% of it is the stuff that's boiling underneath. And, and then that, there's climate change in the background, right? We're not helping you with that either. Yeah. <laughs> um, Got to oust Trump. Uh, we we, we kind of do what you do a few years later. Ousting Trump for some people is maybe the answer, but the underlying, I mean, it's become a cliche among some people, but I'll embrace it, which is that he is, he's not the, he is a symptom of a, of big, deep, problems in America that have not been answered by either party and that nobody's got a great answer for at the moment. So even if somebody, even if he were not to be uh, reelected, all of those problems that have people calling for strong action on the left and the right, all those are still there and the solutions are not around. Jesse Brown is the host of the Candleland podcast. You should listen to it. Jesse, thanks so much Thank for joining you. us. Thank you so much. It's been such thanks, a pleasure. Jesse. Thank you. You know what? Now we're going back to American sleaze. The, you know what my favorite word I learned? Do you guys know this word writing? I did not know this word writing. We, wait, writing? For, Isn't that a word? Which, do you know what a Actually, we'll do a quiz. Do you know what a writing is in no. the context of, Amer of Canadian politics? It's a noun. It's I'm a noun. Do you, you know? It's not like learning. R-I-D-I-N-G? R-I-D-I-N-G. Oh, I was going to ask that. So R-I-D-I-N-G? Yes. And... Okay, I, I yeah, we'll do a, we'll do a little nervous. 20 questions. Here we go. Okay, you can ask me. 
I basically know what it is. Let's do it. This is not planned as part of the show. Is it bigger than go. a bread box? Yes, it is bigger than a bread box. Is it alive? No. Oh, yeah, actually, D- these guys answer. Go is ahead. it a... Pol- Sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, is it a political um, act? No. <laughs> Does it... Uh, all right, fine. Does it take place in the bedroom? <laughs> Sorry, that was a totally cheap... Uh... If it does, you're in big trouble. No. <laughs> does it have to do with food? It's, it concerns politics. Is it an aggressive thing? <laughs> an act of aggression? No, no. A rioting. Hmm. Is it like there gerrymandering? Are... Like very specific meaning? Get it? Oh! <laughs> it's sort of like gerrymandering. No, I think... No. I mean, but it's, that's a word it's that you category. can... It's a word that's, you know, it's not, not uh-huh. associated with it. It's not about drawing maps, but it's like... Oh, it's about drawing maps. I don't know. I've, I've lost the thread. Should we stay on the map? Is it... Hmm. Maps. Is it about the what kind of maps? It's like a real weakness of mine. I think we're at twenty questions already. <laughs> Come on! All right, I'll give a I'll give a I'll give a hint, which I think I think is the. Um, Canada wrong. has three hundred thirty-eight of them. Writing districts. But what does that mean? It's, a di- it's what we call a congressional district. Yeah, they like, call a writing. Oh. That's a good idea to have another word for it. I've been wishing for that as a writer. It's a real problem. You write the word redistricting like a hundred times. What's it the etymology so of that, though? Anyone? It British. does sound British. But they Some, someone, to... wait, well, is there some person who actually knows this? Wants to... Oh. Ah. Like riding circles. Riding but, a horse to see your constituents. But they don't, but the British call it constituencies, right? So they do. They also call it ridings? Oh, they don't. <laughs> oh, they don't. Okay, well... The horse is out of the barn on that one. Uh, that riding good. on that horse, as, All the, right, as so the song goes. So is it like riding circuit, right? So if you're a circuit court judge, you ride circuit. That was how we got the idea of judges riding circuit. Right. Circuit ride, yeah. Oh, it comes from Old Norse, does it? Uh, <laughs> I think he's just. That was very I helpful. think he's just messing with us now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, yes. Right. <laughs> we went for it. Um, all right. Onwards. Here we yeah. go. To a very different note. Jeffrey Epstein, child raping sex offender and billionaire, was arrested this week and charged in New York with sexual offenses against children, against girls that he, you know, raped and solicited and um, did terrible things to in the early 2000s. The, this arrest follows outrage that was generated after the Miami Herald did some reporting about how amazing investigative amazing reporting, investigative Julie reporting. K. Brown. Yeah. Yeah. About yeah. reporting about how Epstein essentially dodged real punishment a decade ago thanks to aggressive lawyering by his own defense team and then pure capitulation by the prosecutors involved in the case, notably the U.S. attorney in Florida named Alex Acosta, who has since become Labor Secretary to President Trump. Epstein shielded himself brilliantly for decades, in part because he was so cozy with so many important people, Bill Clinton being one of them, Donald Trump being another, 
Alan Dershowitz is his lawyer. And now we have this, he was arrested coming off his private plane. I hope he never uh, rides a plane again and he spends the rest of his life in prison as he probably will. Emily, why, we'll see. why is this case important? What, what, why is this case sort of captured so much attention and outrage and, and why is it important? I think that the rot, the layers of rot in the system that it exposes is really worth thinking about. So you see this very wealthy, well-connected man with these fancy lawyers get the kind of plea deal that would seem to be out of reach for almost anyone um, else on the planet. And then in the figure of Alex Acosta, our labor secretary in our uh, benighted country, the prosecutor who was who agreed to this plea deal, um, justifying those actions, saying, you know, really that he not expressing regret saying that they were necessary that because he didn't he was unsure that victims were willing to testify which is a classic dodge yes sorry i i realized sorry to interrupt you we should just briefly explain what it is that epstein did and was accused of doing and then what that punishment that that well, very soft punishment was back he then. had a systematic enterprise that preyed on vulnerable young girls and then indoctrinated those girls after preying on them to go out and find more young girls to keep his appetites filled and built a kind of best in class enterprise for the maintenance of this awful behavior and this kind of grooming right where you right. are in the you're kind of asking people to take steps first it's a massage then it's something else that that young people can be susceptible to and that create this very spooky sense that they're being led along and and, and, and you feel like it should be the case that anybody who behaves that way you were talking earlier David about what's you know shunned in society and what is so uh, it seems to me what is so shocking about this, there are the details of it, which are, are, are horrifying, but then also the fact that he uh, weaved through and was accepted by and a part of the highest and top of part of American society. And then the real kicker is that basically the, the, you know, the thesis statement of this is that in America, if you have enough money, you can behave in this systemic way, get caught behaving in this systemic, awful way, and if you have enough money, you can basically get it all taken care of. And, and I think the kicker part of the story is that Acosta agreed to a plea deal in which there was 13 months of detention prison, but in a place where where Epstein was being released for up to 12 hours a day, six days a week. Like that detail for me is the fundamental horror of the way in which the system was failing, right? And then you have the district attorney's office in New York, Cy Vance's office, showing up in court and arguing for the lowest kind of notification so that Epstein wouldn't have to register as a sex offender so, in New York. In fact, he did have to register. The judge didn't. But that, too, the idea that another prosecutor's office would be in on this um, scheme is really upsetting. And what is the particular rot here? Is it that he was able to pay for defense lawyers who were able to game the system and that it's it's really that he was he was able to inject so much aggression and money into the system that he was able to protect himself? Is it that the prosecutors were uh, too lenient on him because they wanted money from him or because they were scared off by some friends of his? It, what, what, who's, who's, know... who's the wrongdoer here Who, besides him, obviously? I mean, Well, um, I don't think we know about all the underlying motivations. And then also we speculate, which makes it sort of worse. I think we also are 
this case is one of many prisms for thinking about our changing perceptions of gender relations and power right. in, in the light of Me Too, right? So in 2007, one would think that this was clearly criminal and despicable and shun-worthy behavior, and yet it wasn't, clearly. Right. And so I think that is startling all in itself. And the, and the, and the fact that... Uh, Bill Clinton was on his planes and, and used one of his planes to go to Africa and was, there's no evidence uh, of any connection between Bill Clinton and any of this behavior. Um, but the fact that you have Bill Clinton and, uh, even in a photo frame with him and Donald Trump in a photo frame Many with him. Many photo frames. Yeah, and Donald Trump seems to have had a, cl- uh, based on what we know so far, seems to have had more connections with him and and has, and this is where yeah, I think- Yeah, read that this quote, This is man. where I think it gets- particularly supercharged in the moment is the quote from Donald Trump that he told New York Magazine in 2002, I've known Jeff for 15 years, terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with. It's even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do. And many of them are on the younger side. Uh, So that quote is uh, obviously um, sort of adds supercharged to it's this whole thing. It's very unsettling. Plus, right. plus, we should mention there's how many pages of documents that are sealed that might now become unsealed? Yeah, thousands. I think it's 167 Do- different documents that are part of this, a, 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 a companion piece of litigation involving one of the alleged victims. Do you think that, uh, so Alex Acosta is the Secretary of Labor. He is in the cabinet. He was approved by the Senate. The Senate, which knew the broad outlines of what happened here. Should he have to resign? Is this a, is this an offense for which he should resign? He did he committed no criminal act. He just well, he was. He, he, so yes, or maybe he, he did should, commit a criminal well, act. Well, yes, he should resign because a federal judge found last year that he violated federal law by failing to notify the victims, and he had a kind of um, excuse for that today about worrying that they might not keep the secret, and then by seeking restitution, they might in some way discredit the case. But that seems like a very thin explanation. And the idea that you have your labor secretary, someone who in this powerful role as U.S. attorney wasn't abiding by federal law, like in any other administration, doesn't that seem pretty cut and dry? I, it's He's not even like the... 10th most corrupt person in that cabinet, though. That's what's weird. I don't know. I think that that's not true in light of these allegations. What what is interesting is apparently he hasn't done things with the Labor Department that are so um, dismantling of regulation as opposed to like, you know, Scott Pruitt. He isn't someone who's become a kind of boogeyman for Democrats on the left. And uh, I have been surprised at how slow the Democrats have been to really um, take him off. You know, Pelosi did call for his resignation, but Joe Manchin was defending him. They haven't called these victims up to testify. There seems to be a kind of skittishness about really going after him, and I don't get it. Tell me this, Emily. Is there a way in which pre-Me Too, in, in, in where Acosta could be just kind of, these are the kind of deals you cut. He was getting something else from Epstein. Um, sensitivities weren't as high. That, that he is a, um, that it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, that's the way people did, did business back then. And I'm not saying it's right. I understand. But it's a different category than somebody who knows everything that, that Epstein did and, and, and covered up for it. Or I mean, I think that the 
that could wear better if he'd had 13 months of real time. I mean, what's hard about this, right, is that if you're someone who worries, as I do, about overpunishment, here we are talking about a case of what appeared, what I do think is underpunishment. Well, what would have been the correct outcome? And why does this one seem so inadequate? And for me, it has to do with all that work release. And I also think 13 months seems just on its own, like, too little. You know, the idea that you couldn't get a single one of those women to be a reliable good witness on the stand, that you couldn't put a lot of effort into trying to figure that out. I'm going to be really interested to see how those women respond to Acosta's remarks and whether they have a different take on what happened. Do you think, so Epstein was enabled apparently by a group of people who helped him and who helped him go out and recruit these girls um, who were essentially betting in his in his scheme of child rape and these people are unlike epstein are walking free they're not in prison there's particularly a woman who was sort of his right hand woman who who has been implicated in this and how like how do those people walk with sleep like how what what story because no one wants to be the villain no one is the villain of their own life right people you know find ways to self-justify what is the way that that somebody who helped him self-justifies this. And I think people have all kinds of very wrong-headed ideas about teenagers. And there's a kind of myth of a Lolita creature who is um, seductive and is part of... Um, uh, who's voluntarily engaging as opposed to someone who's a child and, you know, you're not... isn't can't voluntarily consent. I mean, one of the striking details of this is that there were prostitution charges brought against one of those victims. Like, that was how this was resolved, right? So an and underage, so a girl, a girl is being was, accused of prostitution because she's paid to be raped by yes, a 60-year-old and, and you know, billionaire. The correct understanding is that minors are not they cannot be right they can't consent and so there is no such thing as child prostitute like that's a term we should just shed and i was reading that what the police chief in palm beach was trying to change florida's law so this couldn't happen again and yet just 12 years ago that was how this was resolved and so i think there you know we imagine that we're in this time that everything that teenagers are children and that we see this clear line but i think that's a not as universally shared as it should be and b uh, even if, if it's become more prevalent, that's very recent. And I'm, I'm honestly not sure it would be so different. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having John Dickerson a glass of Canadian club whiskey <laughs> at the Duke of York pub. What are you going to be chattering about? I am going to be ch chattering about two things. The first is uh, American Carnage, which is a book coming out by Tim Alberta, and it's called American Carnage on the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War. Um, Tim wrote for the National Review, and then wrote for, and then now writes for uh, Politico magazine. And basically, there's an excerpt in Politico now, the book doesn't come out for a couple of weeks, but I would recommend uh, to everyone from uh, Politico. And it's basically, um, one of the things about looking at the Trump presidency is we look at it episodically because there are these extraordinary explosions and some of them are, uh, you know, dashing efforts to get things done that are in the interest of the people who elected him and re rewiring the office. Others are challenges to deep set norms of American behavior. 
and they are kind of episodic. And what Tim has done in this book is look at the, the shift and change in the Republican Party and the conservative movement that has been so profound in just a super short period of time. You were talking earlier, um, but I mean, on, on, on major things, on everything from a party that used to care deeply about deficit reduction and the size of, of um, the debt has just go- basically gone mute on that issue. Um, that was once pro-trade uh, is now basically tr- behind Donald Trump's trade agenda. That w- where the evangelical voters um, once, you know, drummed anyone out of uh, office or tried to who had moral failings because they drew a direct relationship between the personal moral failings and the culture of the country has uh, found its way around supporting Donald Trump, both not just because of his personal behavior, but also his public behavior. So this massive change. And the the excerpt that's in Politico was the one moment, the 48 hours when the tape comes out during the campaign, the Access Hollywood tape in which Donald Trump is is basically describing sexual assault in a, a, how would you put it, lighthearted way. And he details... Basically, what, what happened to me when I was reading it is this is the moment you where, you know, there are people who break from Donald Trump, but basically this is when he decides to bring Bill Clinton's accusers to the first debate. And it is the moment when this change kind of locks in. And the and he went and and the Republicans support him after that debate. Mike Pence has a moment of crisis. He kind of disappears for three days and then comes back and he's with Donald Trump. And just kind of stepping back and looking at that moment, and the book looks at it more broadly, but this is, it reminds you what an extraordinary change in in a major American political movement took place in basically less than two years, you could argue, in basically a year. Anyway, so I recommend it to everyone. The other thing I would say is, today when I woke up, people are often told, don't check your email overnight because, you know, you want to get your sleep and the blue light of the email is bad to check. Well, I woke up very early this morning and I checked my email and I thought, well, I should check in for my flight. I was in South Carolina. And so I did so. It was, it was about five o'clock in the morning. And when I checked in for my flight, it turns out to go to Canada, you, you need something called a passport. David yeah. wrote that in an email to us. That was I emailed you like three days ago, bring your bring passport. Bring your passport. I... <laughs> uh, so maybe you should, should check your email. It to yeah. you? I didn't check that email. Anyway, so That's what happened? Wow. I was You're up here. quick like a bunny. Uh, but your passport must not have been with you in South Carolina. It was not, and my flight was going to be through Dulles, but then uh, through uh, Dulles is a Washington airport. It was Washington airport outside of Washington, it's which just like happened far to be, away in Virginia. It was just happened to be the connection. There's little relationship to the Washington, connection to get here, but because of my colleague Claire Fahi, who was actually going to Portugal, I rerouted through Newark. She went to my apartment, got uh, the passport, oh handed God. it to me in She's Newark. A hero. I got here. Wow. Nice. So and thank you, you Declare. I didn't tell you because I thought I'd tell you right now. That's a good <laughs> And so if I told you before here. then you'd be like, hey he's telling the damn passport story again. No, we would I meant you didn't tell us you spared us. He won't worry. shut up about the passport story. Anyway, so uh, I'm, I didn't realize you sent an email, obviously. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Emily, what's your chatter? 
Subject line next time. I read two pieces this week that will stick with me. They're very different emotional registers. The one that really um, touched my heart is by Farai Chidea. It's called Excuse Me, May I Raise Your Child? And it's about three attempts that she made to adopt a baby, none of which succeeded. And it's kind of brutally honest, but also incredibly unjudgmental about the choices that the mothers of these babies made in deciding to keep their children. And it just made me think about the difficulties of childbearing and having a family in a way that I hadn't for a long time. Um, I really, really recommend it. And then if you need something that's just more fluffy and fun, Jessica Pressler, who is a terrific writer at New York Magazine, wrote a story called A Class Riot at Brooklyn's Grace Church School, which is about, essentially, it's like big little lies transported to a preschool in um, Brooklyn Heights, I believe. And oh my God, it is so funny and mean, and it will make you feel so smug about not living in New York City, or I don't know where else could be so precious and frightening. Also, it's one of those stories, like the story about the um, fire festival falling apart, where everyone is bad. It's like old money losing out to new money. I mean, I guess you feel a little bad for the actual teachers, but all the other actors seem highly dubious. Um, I really, really, can you send that yes, to me now? I will, you will definitely. It's right up your alley. So those two pieces, um, I recommend. Uh, my chatter is uh, about what's going on in Alaska, which is dismal. Uh, there's a Republican governor who's a real, very conservative guy, and he and Alaska has a strange system where it doesn't really have any taxation. It just takes this oil revenue and uses that to fund the government. And no one pays any taxes of any sort, and and also every Alaskan gets paid this oil dividend, and it can be thousands of dollars a year. But the number has been declining, and so the governor, this new governor, Mike Dunleavy, is basically said, no, we need to get that. We need to stop spending money on government and we need to give people back this oil revenue that they deserve. And so we're, we're going to get this payment back up to $3,000 a year so that you can uh, go and spend it on what you'd like instead of the government spending on what it likes. And so as a result, he's cutting, he did a line item veto where he's cutting almost half a billion dollars out of the budget that the, that the legislature approved. And notably, he's cutting... 40% out of the University of Alaska's budget, and he cut it out basically with no notice. And so that as of this week, the University of Alaska has to fire hundreds of its faculty, cut back enormous numbers of programs, and uh, you know not offer all kinds of things that it offer, and, and it's going to stop being the institution, which, which in fact the governor himself has a degree from, and is the entire political class in Alaska has a degree from, um, and it's it's really depressing. It's a it's an, just this enormous assault on higher public higher education in the United States. And what it represents actually is something even worse, which is the way that higher education, particularly public higher education, has become partisan in the U.S. And that universities have become a symbol of the left. And even these public universities, which have which in almost every state are the source of of the you know the the business leaders, uh, professional class, the teachers, the educators, the doctors, the lawyers, the politicians, that these universities are now seen as sort of creatures of the left and they don't need to be maintained, they don't need to be funded, and it's weakening American higher education at a very rapid rate because higher education has become partisan. It's much less something which everyone is supporting um, and now something that, that is really a democratic issue. And it's bad news and Alaska is the kind of front line of it and uh, there's nothing 
good to say about it. But, but, there are also great listeners. Now I listeners. want a cocktail. We, got, yeah. we also are collecting listener chatter. So, listeners, you're, you are tweeting chatters to us at, at SlateGabFest. And there's a really good one, which is very apropos this week. It's from Keenan Sprague, who sent it to us on Facebook. And it's a story in Vox that Keenan Sprague points us to, which is three reasons the American Revolution was a mistake. And it's very much after my heart, because it's essentially saying, why, what, what are the things that went wrong because of the American Revolution, and what would have happened otherwise? And sort of, it's sort of like, why Canada is better, is the lesson. Because it says, one, abolition, abolition of slavery would have come Earlier. much more quickly, because the British Empire got rid of slavery. Some evidence for that. Um, yeah, it got rid of slavery a full two generations before the United States did, uh, and without a but, war. But yeah. don't, 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 I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Thesis, yeah. though, one of my kids is really interested in this. I'm, it's not I'm crazy, crazy, but there's so a, like a. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Two, two that that this one I think is probably not true. That uh, native peoples would have been treated better under under British rule. Just like India, than, things went super well for native uh, peoples there. Uh, and three, the real one is that we would have had a parliamentary system and not the facoc system that we developed. And. And I think we're increasingly seeing how unstable and dangerously uh, fragile our political system is um, because we don't have because we're not a parliamentary democracy. So you have these different sources of legitimate power. So anyway, it's a really interesting story. John, what would you like to say? No, no, it's fine. It's fine. It, it would have been in the Brits' self-interest to also, keep. Also, you American wouldn't have had to have your passport because it would have just been one yeah. country. So going to Toronto, it would just been easy. Two more you hours just, of sleep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You just go from your riding in South Carolina. And you... <laughs> Wait, but what were you about to say? The Brits what? Well, I was going to say the Brits would have kept the American... The American system in the, in the South, the economy... It was so lucrative that they would have yeah, just they allowed have, it to continue. Yes, I think yeah. that's right. With yeah. sla- right. They were able to get rid of slavery because slavery was not that valuable in most of right. the Right, and so if they're still territory. taking if But there still is an argument that has them. to do with the balance of power in the colonies that became, right, that was part of entrenching slavery was the idea that the South was making sure to assert itself. Um, like The three-fifths clause is a product sure. of that problem and that all of those political tensions... You couldn't have gotten an agreement on the Constitution had you not made the, both the compromise on the Electoral College and on the three-fifths. That's true. But all those same pressures would have would have had their manifestations with British rule too. I think. All right, we should have okay. a anyway, longer conversation can, with this with an actual. I, you yes. are a historian. We should have another historian, Steve. Not me. That is our show for today. The Political Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Faith Smith put together this Canadian journey for us, and we appreciate the Kerner Hall at the Tele Center for Performance and Learning in Toronto for letting us visit. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of audio. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet your chatter at us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you, Toronto. Hello, Slate Plus. Comment ça va, as we say here in Canada. Today's Slate Plus segment is a Q&A with our audience here in Toronto. First question. Hi, my name is Zahava. I'm an American expat, moved up to Toronto less than a year ago, so thanks for bringing me a taste of home. 
Um, so this is a question related to the Epstein segment. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has been rejecting calls to impeach Alexander Acosta um, in much the way that she's been rejecting calls to impeach anyone else. Um, I'm wondering what this might say about the battle between Nancy Pelosi and more progressive members of the Democratic caucus and what this might portend for what she thinks the role of Congress is in the Trump administration. I think it's it's kind of a smaller version of the other fight that you alluded to over whether to impeach Donald Trump. I think she's, um, we're gonna know in a few weeks whether there's grounds to for impeachment. And I think she- We are? Why? Wait, impeachment of, a, of Acosta of or impeachment I think of, of I think of, of Acosta. I think I think you're gonna find. Oh, I think her view is, is her view out. almost is given the politics in America right now and the and what Democrats hope to to achieve in in electing a Democratic president that that impeachment almost has to be self-actualizing that in other words the case has to be so powerful that uh, that it'll be kind of obvious to go forward and, and then with, he would resign presumably right and so I think she's she's basically saying we don't know about enough now. We've got all these other things. We don't want to be defined as the impeach right away before we know anything party. So, and if, if there's cause for it, he'll either resign or we'll have cause for it. And it'll be, it'll be a pretty easy, or not easy, but it'll be pretty obvious that we're in the right. Um, there's an internal investigation in the Justice Department about the plea deal for right. Epstein. And one really, I think, not clear fa uh, question is how much we're going to find out about what the details are in those findings when they are actually when we have findings. Right. So but it's smart for her to wait to find out that to let that process go forward. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash Plus to become a member today.